From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and in this episode, I'd like to revisit something that I've been thinking about for a while. And what I mean is that a couple years ago, I did one of our language family shows, and it was about Semitic. The Semitic languages include Hebrew and Arabic and Aramaic and across the Red Sea in Ethiopia, Amharic. And it's a fascinating group of languages. Many of you had asked for me to do a show about that, and I did. But you know what? I was actually cheating to an extent because Semitic is not a language family, technically speaking, as I said in the episode, but still, the episode was all about Semitic. The general implication was that there's Indo-European and then there's Semitic. It's an easy impression to get. But really, Semitic is part of a whole language family far beyond itself that you probably didn't know existed. And I acknowledged it in the Semitic show, but just in a drive-by kind of way. It's time to actually do a show about that family, which is multifarious, large, influential, utterly fascinating. It's a family that I remember when I was a kid and I used to find myself looking through big old books just for fun because I was crazy then like I am now. I remember there was one of these books that had a big giant tree of the language families of the world as they were understood at the time. And one of them was called Hamato-Semitic. I first learned of this family we're going to do today as Hamato-Semitic. And what that meant was Ham, as in sons of Ham, as in black descendants of Noah, and then Semitic is Shem, so sons of Ham and sons of Shem, children of Ham, children of Shem. Now, what that meant was that they're the Semitic languages, and then over in Africa, there are all these other related languages that are spoken by these Hamites, by these black people. And so Hamito-Semitic might as well have been blackety-Semitic. That's what it meant. Or maybe you can think of it as blackety-Whitic, the blackety-Whitic family. That won't do. And these days, we are more likely to call it the Afro-Asiatic family. Or to me, what it really is, is the Sherman-Williams family. You know that logo for that paint company where they have paint being poured over the globe and it's halfway down and it says cover the earth? Well, Afro-Asiatic covers Africa in that way. It looks as if somebody poured some cream over Africa and you have about 300 languages that basically cover the ground in that top part. There's the Niger-Congo language family that is most of Africa, especially below the Sahara. But up on top, what's quote-unquote covering the earth, except the earth is Africa, is this Sherman-Williams-shaped Afro-Asiatic family. And the truth is that the Afro part, the Hamido part, is just as interesting as the Semito part. And this is a highly populous family. This family, Afro-Asiatic, has the fourth most speakers on earth. Of course, there's Indo-European, given the disproportionate influence of a certain few of those languages because of colonialism and imperialism. Then there's this Niger-Congo. That's another one that has an awful lot of speakers, because we're talking about most of Africa. Then Sino-Tibetan, largely because of a certain thing called Chinese, where it has, you know, just a few speakers. Then there's Afro-Asiatic, a lot because of Arab. But still, that means that this is the fourth most populous language family. It's also a family that's sentimental to me for a couple reasons that we'll get into. So, today, let's do the erstwhile Hamito-Semitic and today Afro-Asiatic language family. One of my favorites for all kinds of reasons. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. By the way, folks, as I've mentioned before, Lexicon Valley is not ending. It's just moving. We'll be moving to booksmartstudios.org. I will continue to be the host. I will be happy to have you come with me. But to do so, you have to follow me to booksmartstudios.org. So Semitic is just a subfamily of the Afroasiatic family. There are five other subfamilies that are traditionally considered Afro-Asiatic. Semitic, just by way of review, is Hebrew and Arabic and Aramaic, the Jesus language, and then also various languages, not just one or two, but various languages spoken in Ethiopia. So Hebrew and Arabic and Amharic in Ethiopia are very similar languages in terms of grammar and if you know how to look closely, even in terms of vocabulary. And with Semitic, the big hallmark is that it's as if you have a verb like believe And then to put it in the past, you don't say believed and stick a suffix on, but you say something like balav, where you leave the consonants in place and you change the vowels. And then maybe if you wanted to talk about a belief, instead of saying a belief, you'd say something like baluv, and that would mean a belief. That's how Semitic languages work. And so, for example, in Arabic, you have something like kitab, that's book, but the essence of it is k. The vowels do all sorts of things, but the reading is k-t-p, because if you want to say books, you don't say kitabs, or for Hebrew speakers, it's not kitabim or something like that. It's kutub. You do that. And then say for just a pick a word out of the air, such as subscriber, it's muktatib. So k-t-p, muktatib, subscriber, such as to Slate Plus or Substack. So that is how Semitic works. That's really cool, but. What about the other five subfamilies of Afroasiatic? Let's take a look at them. The first one that comes to mind for me, because we're now up at the top of Africa, is the Berber subfamily. Berber is not just one language, depending on how you count it. It's about seven, surely more than that, but often it's thought that seven is the official number of how many Berber languages there are. But if you're talking about people in, say, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, also Egypt, These people did not always speak Arabic. Arabic had a massive and very successful spread with the spread of Islam. But before Arabic became so influential in such places, the indigenous languages were, for example, Berber. There are also some Berber languages or a Berber language spoken further inland, separate from the other ones in the Sahara. But these are languages that are Afroasiatic, not Semitic, but Afroasiatic. And they have all sorts of interesting features. My favorite thing, just randomly, my favorite thing about Berber is how it handles making things feminine and what that means for what even the languages themselves are called. It's really interesting. So donkey, the word for donkey is ahyul, ahyul, okay? Now, the way to make it feminine is not something like ahyula or an ahyulet 
or an Ariolina or something like that. The way you do it is with a kind of a headphones. You put something at the beginning and something at the end. So, Ariol donkey. A girl donkey is Tariolt. So, you put a ta up front and a t at the end. So, Tariolt. That's a female donkey. So if you are a Berber speaker, you hear the feminine in that way, the ta at the beginning and the t at the end. And what that means is that there's a disjunction between what outsiders often know the Berber languages to be called and what Berber people themselves call them. So for example, one of the Berber languages is called shilha. If you were going to say it in English, shilha. But then in Berber, you refer to languages in the feminine. And so, you end up having the ta at the beginning and the t at the end. So, what happens is you have to say ta shilhat, but if you say it over and over, there are changes. So, shilha to us is to its speakers tashlhit. Tashlhit. That's what the language is. So, it's tashilha is in there. So, tashlhit. Or, all of the Berber languages together sometimes are called amazich. You can also use that for one of them, but Amazigh is becoming the more proper name for Berber languages. Linguists often call them that, and especially linguists who are of the area. So, Amazigh. Well, what it's called in Berber is Tamazicht. Tamazicht. So, you see what looks in English like Amazigh, and then you see this Tamazite, which is what it looks like in spelling. You think they're different things. It's really just Amazigh made feminine in a system where making something feminine is very different from sticking ah on the end as we're used to. And my favorite one of these is one of the Berber languages is called Kabyle. The way that comes out when you make it feminine, it should be like Takbilt or something like that. But then you say it over and over, over hundreds and thousands of years, and all sorts of things happen. Takbilt is actually pronounced thakvalif. Instead of tak, it's thak, and the is a uvular stop. So bilabial stop, p, alveolar stop, t, velar stop. Then you go a little further back, and it's a uvular stop. You pronounce it where that uvula is, and so you have So, takbilet is thak, and then it isn't bileth, it's v. It's that weird in-between B and V sound that you get frustrated with when you're being taught Spanish. So, takbilet, and then it isn't bileth, it's ba, and so valet, and then v instead of t. So, thakvalet. I love saying that. So that's how you get from Kabyle to what it's actually called when you make it feminine. In any case, Berber has its own writing system, not Arabic. It's got its own, and it's used more and more lately. It's called Tifinach, and it's actually part of why Afroasiatic is one of my favorite languages. I have sentiment about Afroasiatic because the first foreign language that I ever heard was Hebrew. I don't remember if I've told that story on this show, but frankly, I've written it and said it in so many places that some of you have probably already heard about me hearing the little girl speak Hebrew and crying because I couldn't understand what she was saying and thinking I have to learn Hebrew and not realizing that that was a symptom of one, probably a career sometime later in my life, and two, a kind of serious mental illness that I cared that much. And so Hebrew, that's Afroasiatic. But then the first writing system, the first alphabet that I saw, other than my own, which actually knocked me out in the same way, was actually Tifinach. 
So for some reason, and I, I can't reconstruct this, but in my Montessori school, there were these cards with various alphabets. Thank God for Montessori schools. And one of them was Toreg, it was called. And it was these pretty little, what looked like to me, symbols Toreg. And this card indicated what the sounds were. Nobody could really tell me what Toreg was, except I think one person said Africa. So I didn't know anything about what Berber was. But I knew, oh, wait, there's this other alphabet. And so I started, quote unquote, writing in Toreg. It didn't occur to me at the time that it wasn't English that we were supposed to be using in using this alphabet. But to this day, whenever I see Tifinach, I am suddenly six or seven years old. And I think on the one hand of Jeffrey Nussbaum, who used to literally throw his feces across the classroom, and they got rid of him. I've mentioned him on the show before. And then also, darling Philip, who would give me sardines from his lunch. I've once mentioned him on the show, too. So Jeffrey, Philip, and Tifinach. Another thing about Berber, and I mentioned this briefly in the Semitic show, is that often words don't have vowels. So, for example, one word for to irritate is with a double uvular stop. That's actually the word. There are no vowels in it. And it's interesting. I was in a cab once, and I was listening to somebody talking. And, you know, from aspects of his appearance, I was thinking maybe this is a person from a certain area of the world. And I thought, well, it's not Hebrew. Then I thought, it's not Arabic, because you hear a lot of Arabic in New York, and this wasn't quite it. I thought, if it sounds kind of like them, but it's kind of whispery, it seems like it doesn't have enough vowels in a way. I thought, I wonder if this person is Berber, and damned if he wasn't. And he said, oh, how did you know? And actually, I got to ask him about something that we have to always be careful with. The idea that languages don't have a word for something, that that says something about the people. I once read about Berber that in Berber, there are no words for winning and losing. So the idea was to depict the Berber as people who aren't as obsessed with competition and ranking people as we Westerners are. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know anything about whether or not the Berbers are into one-upping each other or not, but a language that doesn't have words for win or lose, I thought that couldn't be true. I mean, they're children playing games and somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. They don't have a word for it. So I asked this guy, I said, so if you're Berber, could you answer me a question? And I said, what is the word in Berber for to win? And he gave the word. And I said, what's the word in Berber for to lose? And he said, oh, that's ba-ba-boom. There was no question. And I said, is there anything unusual about those words? Are those words actually from some other language? He had no idea what I meant. And then I went a few weeks later and looked in a dictionary. They have words for win and lose. And so, you know, whatever Berbers are like as a culture, languages have words for winning and losing. At least I would assume that they almost always do. And, you know, as we get to the end of the slate run of Lexicon Valley, this is going to be my last Merman cut. This is Ethel Merman. This is her singing a song from Panama Hattie, a Cole Porter score of 1940. It came. It went. That's about the way it was supposed to be. This song isn't great, but I love the way her voice sits. This is just near the end of the song. What a wonderful instrument this person had. The song is called My Mother Would Love You.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another subfamily in Afro-Asiatic is Egyptian. Just Egyptian, the Egyptian language. So you see those hieroglyphics, those wonderful things that look like drawings, but actually they are encoding a language. You are pardoned to think that the language they're encoding is Arabic. I thought that when I was a kid, because people in the regions that you find these hieroglyphics in today speak Arabic, and you figure Arabic has been spoken there since the Big Bang. But no, Arabic only spread in a latterly fashion. And before that, in, for example, Egypt, there was this other Afroasiatic subfamily spoken, a small one, and that's the Egyptian language. It's not Arabic, it's not Hebrew, it's not Berber, it is itself. And actually, that Egyptian language, because of the richness of the hieroglyphics, is actually the longest recorded written language in the world. You have 4,500 years of Egyptian, starting with ancient Egyptian, and it continues today in what is called Coptic. Coptic is a liturgical language, but it's a direct descendant of this ancient Egyptian that you can see written with hieroglyphics. 4,500 years. The very first sentence that is recorded in ancient Egyptian, and therefore one of the first recorded sentences in human writing, is he has united the two lands for his son, dual King Peribson. We've lost a lot of the context, but that is the first sentence that we have of ancient Egyptian. And you know, there's something about Egyptian that may seem a little inside baseball, but it isn't. You know that idea that many of you possibly have, if you haven't listened to all 131 episodes that I've done of Lexicon Valley, that languages tend to simplify? You know how there's this idea that as languages move along, they get easier, and you never stop to think about how if that were really the case, why aren't all languages now dust, you know, given how long languages have been spoken? But you're often told that, and it's partly because... Spanish can be argued to have a less complex grammar than Latin. Modern English definitely has a less complex grammar than Old English. Certain languages that you see mostly in Europe, not to mention Semitic languages, might give you a sense that languages tend to get easier. And then also, many linguists think it, because there's this one article written in 1970 by a man named Hodge, and it's about Egyptian. And what he describes is that Egyptian goes through cycles where it's really complicated and then only kind of complicated, then really complicated and then only kind of complicated in terms of how many prefixes and suffixes it has. But, you know, memory fades easily, and I certainly understand that. That article has tended to be interpreted, even by some specialists, as saying that Egyptian started out like Latin and then it became like English and had virtually nothing in terms of the ablo, ablas, abla kind of thing. And then it went back to being like Latin and then it went down to nothing. So there's this idea that languages go through this cycle. They've got petticoats, and then the language is butt naked, and then you've got petticoats, then it's back down to bare-ass naked. That's how languages are supposed to go. But no, that's not what that article said. And it's just one of those things. Think about how there are always new things happening, even as some things are getting simpler. Like in English, for example, holic as a suffix. I'm a friends-holic, somebody might say, because they really like that show. Or gate, 
You talk about, well, it's dinner gate or it's happy gate. This idea that gate refers to a crisis because of what just happened to be the final syllable of the Watergate Hotel a very long time ago. Those sorts of things, they start out feeling like jokes, but after a while, they really are part of the language. Hollick and gate are part of English. And those things have happened only in the past hundred years. Things like that are always creeping in, even if the difference between, say, lie and lay falls away. These things happen together. Egyptian is said to have given us words like both ebony and ivory. No, I'm not going to play that awful song. Also, Oasis, I want to tell you that cat comes from Egyptian, but I'm not convinced. There is a word shout in ancient Egyptian, shout, and supposedly that became cat. You know, to tell you the truth, that's just, it's stupid. It reminds me of a guy I heard on the subway. He was probably about 15 when Avatar came out, and his take on the movie Avatar, which he hadn't seen yet, was, I hear there's this movie about blue people. That's stupid. A whole movie about blue people. (laughs) Well, shout as cat is, that's just stupid. But there was a a Broadway musical about Cleopatra. And I'm not going to play anything from that because, frankly, it wasn't very good. But it starred Leslie Uggams, who was one of the best singers, is, and was one of the best singers who ever appeared on Broadway. She, frankly, did not ever truly get her due because she was black at the wrong time. She would have had much more of a career if she had just come along later. But one of her shows was called Hallelujah Baby. And the cast album of it is a joy forever because you get to listen to her singing in Columbia's wonderful sonics of the time. This is her singing an interesting ballad called Being Good Isn't Good Enough. And just listen to the way she can be deliberately an eighth tone flat and then rises onto the pitch, the technique that she had in hitting a note. This is Being Good Isn't Good Enough, one of my favorite cuts ever. Being good won't be good enough When I fly, I must fly extra high And I'll need special wings so far to go from so far below Should I try? Am I strong enough? Is there time? Have I long enough? You know, while we're listening to being good isn't good enough, we can think about the fact that at Slate, we often feel that way. And to be good enough, sometimes we need a little bit of extra money. And that's why we have Slate Plus. You go to slate.com slash lexicon plus, and what you get is a tag at the end of the show, some extra information that you can't hear if you don't pay the nominal fee and get Slate Plus. And also, if you've got Slate Plus, you don't have to listen to the commercials. It really is an interesting experience. I actually listened to one of the podcasts. I'm not going to say which one, but you can probably guess with Slate Plus not long ago. And I thought, wow, it is a lot smoother if you don't have the commercials. And then it's nice to get the little tag, even if you already knew what it was. And in addition, now we 
we have an offer, just a dollar for the first month. After that, it's it's more than that, but it's still nominal. Just a dollar. And if you want to know why it's called a cocktail, you have to get Slate Plus. You know what that is? That's the Love Boat voice. Remember how back in the day when they would do bumpers for Love Boat, they'd say, and next week on the Love Boat. Well, I'm trying to do that. And so if you want to know why it's called a cocktail, you have to get Slate Plus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, you've got your Semitic. You've got your Berber. You've got your Egyptian. Well, what else? Another subfamily is Cushitic. And now we're getting into the subfamilies where it's kind of hard to know where to grab on because we're talking about languages that most of us who are not of the region have no reason to know anything about. But Cushitic is a great many languages that are spoken in East Africa. The one that many of us have probably heard of is Somali. Somalians do not speak a language related to, for example, Swahili or Wolof or something like that. Somalians speak a language that is related in its way to Hebrew and Arabic. They are all part of the same family. So, Cushitic, the subfamily exemplified by Somali. Somali can teach us a really important lesson, and that is the intricacy the fearsome intricacy that languages can indulge in, even if they aren't written languages. Somali has been a written language in any real way, only for the past several decades. But even when it was only a spoken language, it had poetry that would wind just about anybody. So, for example, let's say that you have a line, God has put out their fire and has dampened the valor of their heroes. So that's how it goes. Now, the line in this form of Somali poetry goes roughly, Somalis, I'm sorry, but I tried my best. I'm going to read the line again. So, Okay, what in the world is that? Well, the thing is, it's very intricate because it's based on these really nasty, fascinating rules about how the poetry has to go. So for one thing, each line has to be in four parts, and each part has five beats. Now, you can combine two beats into one long beat. And so that means that often the five beats are kind of a long and a long and then a short. So that's like two, two, and one. You can do all sorts of combinations of those, but it has to come out to five. So for example, when I say, those are three words. But first is, that's two, that's two, and then right there. That's the first of the four parts because it's five. And so, and then, Dabkodio is a word, but in the middle of the word, you start another one of these four parts. And so dabkodio, well, dab is the fifth beat of the first part. Then you start a second part, and it's kodio san. And then the san is another word, but the kodio san is kind of like one, two, three, four, five. That's how it all goes. Then, if you listen to the whole thing again, ilaba dabkodio sandahai danaba do diet, hear a lot of Ds. 
The idea in this poetry is that you use a particular sound a lot, but not next to each other. You can't go, you know, something like biddy booby baby or something like that. You have to separate them. So ilaba dab kodio sanda haida You have to have that sound, but you can't have the sounds right next to each other. You have to have a long vowel at least in between. And that's how this form of Somali poetry worked. This is oral. This was passed down. It was almost like a word game, but beautiful. That is one of many stories that you can tell from the Cushitic languages. So whenever you meet somebody who is from Somalia and they speak Somali, they are somebody who is using a language where this was and sometimes still is done. Then there's another subfamily. Another subfamily is called Chadic. Chadic is 150 languages that basically we've never heard of. They're spoken in Niger, Nigeria, and Chad. Big family of very complicated languages. And yet, really, if we've heard of one of them, it's Hausa. Other than that, all of us will draw a blank on any of them unless we happen to be specialists. But there's Hausa. Hausa is spoken in Nigeria and beyond, but its homeland is Nigeria. And the thing about Hausa is that it's one of the big three in Nigeria, and it's different. If you know a Nigerian, probably in addition to the English that you're communicating with them in, they know either Yoruba, Igbo, or Hausa, depending on the region that they come from. Yoruba and Igbo are from the other big giant family of Africa called Niger-Congo. Hausa is an Afro-Asiatic language. It's from the Chadic subfamily of Afro-Asiatic. And so you see that Nigeria is one of the most linguistically rich places on earth, 300 languages spoken in Nigeria by some counts, and that includes languages from completely different families and a great many of them from both. So that's Hausa, and Hausa is a big lingua franca. You know, despite that most of us might draw a blank on it, it is very commonly used in that part of Africa, all the way down to where Ghana is and even all the way down to where Cameroon is. So we've all heard of Swahili, and we probably know that Swahili is used in several East African countries. Here in West Africa, Hausa is one of the languages that's like that. And it used to be a language of empire. This was a lingua franca for people speaking countless smaller languages for a very long time. And when you zero in on Hausa, the first thing that you find is that, you know, the sounds are pretty easy to make. Of course, it has to be tonal. (laughs) It has to give you that. But the sounds are pretty easy to produce. But the thing that you run aground upon is that there are 20 different ways of forming the plural. So here in English, we, you know, you tack an S onto something. In this language, There are 20 different ways of forming the plural. To a large extent, you just kind of have to know which way you do it with with each noun that you learn. So it's not that every single noun does it differently. It's almost harder than that in that you have to learn 20 different ways of forming the plural. And of course, if you speak the language natively, you don't even think about it. But boy, it's that hard if you approach it after the age of about one and a half, literally about 15. And that means that Hausa teaches a lesson. The further away you get from native indigenous Hausa speaking territory, the more it's being just used as a tool, as a lingua franca, the easier it gets. There are many 
easier kinds of hausa with, you know, even some of the sounds that give you a little bit of a challenge, they start fading away. These forms of the plural, all of it gets much easier and you've only got two or three ways of forming it or maybe just one. That's typical. Swahili is like that. The further you get from the little tiny islandy place that Swahili was originally spoken, the easier the language got. And Swahili is the easiest of the languages of its kind because it's been used by adults who end up shaving it down. Fula is like that. Fula is a language of West Africa. If you know somebody who speaks it, if they speak real Fula, they're speaking literally one of the most complex languages on the planet Earth. But as you get away from indigenous Fula territory, they're easier Fulas. Lingua francas take it lighter, unless they're formally taught like Russian. So no, you're not going to see simpler Russians except spoken on the fly by people orally among the many, 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 many people who have learned Russian non-natively because that's been relatively late in the game taught in school. But if you're talking about contexts where literacy has been less uniform, then you end up having this tendency, which is that languages take it lighter as they're used more by adults. Hausa teaches that lesson. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Finally, we have the sixth subfamily of Afroasiatic, except, you know, it probably isn't, but I'm just going to throw it in here in case it turns out that it is. That's a family called Omotic. And once again, with Omotic, we haven't heard of any of the languages, but we're talking about languages of Ethiopia and thereabouts that aren't Ethiosemitic. And Omotic is interesting because there's been a lumping tendency in how African families are worked out. And that's because you have to start somewhere, and it is scientific to look for patterns, and because of where the Yamatic languages are spoken, and then I'm sure that the idea was, well, they're black, and they're living on the land, and it's in this Afroasiatic, Hamato-Semitic area, so Yamatic must be just like them. So Yamatic must be part of Afroasiatic, because it's nothing like that other big family in Africa, Niger-Congo. But then when you actually look at the languages, they're not really much like anything. So for example, one of them is called Bench, yeah, Bench. And bench is spoken in a remote part of Ethiopia. Bench has six tones, six beautiful tones. You can whistle it. There's whistled bench, and you can really get your meaning across because it has six tones. And then bench is just crazy. I say that with great affection, but the <laughs> grammatical rules, if you say um, go, it's hum, okay? If you want to say he went, you say hankue. <laughs> so all of that, hum, go. Went, hankue. He will go, hamsumsue. Like that. Imagine that is how your verbs work, and that's you know how they all work. But you zero in closer, and you start thinking exactly how is this Afro-Asiatic? And so, for example, the word for dog. If you look at all of the Omotic languages and trace back, kind of like we're always talking about that language spoken on the steppes of Ukraine, and that's Proto-Indo-European. Proto-Omotic for dog would be Khan. Like one of the Omotic languages is called Gonga, and the word for dog is, is Kana. Okay, so Khan. And then 
Somebody looks at, say, Kelev in Hebrew, and the fact that in Semitic, it's generally thought that the original word for dog would have been something like kelev. So kelev, kelev. Now, the b is thought maybe to have been an animal suffix, and that means that the original root for dog is kel. And so it's kan in Amaric and kel in Semitic, and so that means that these languages must be related. Isn't that a little forced? Because frankly, in Proto-Indo-European, on the steps of Ukraine at a certain point, the word for dog would have been kwon. Isn't that more like khan than kulub? And if you look at the case for omotic as Afroasiatic, most of it is like that. And all of it would work just as well with Proto-Indo-European. These things seem to be random. And as such, it's not a surprise that recently it's been found that Omotic language speakers' genes don't match up with other Afro-Asiatic speaking people's genes. It doesn't look like Omotic really is a member of the family at all. And what that means is that Omotic is just a language family all by itself. It probably used to be a much bigger one. That's like Basque in Europe. There's lots of evidence that Basque languages were spread much more widely in Europe than they are now. But now it's just down to this one language that straddles France and Spain. Well, Omotic apparently is a remnant of what was actually a language family of its own. And more and more of this sort of thing is being discovered in Africa. Africa is where humanity started. It's therefore where language started. And it means language has been there the longest. And so we would expect there to be an extreme diversity of language families there. And it's well known that there are at least four, depending on how you count it, being smarter about it, six. But even that vastly undercounts it. It's becoming clear that there are all sorts of language families that you see evidence of in Africa. Often it's just one remaining language, but you're talking about a whole story. It's a crazy quilt. Omotic is almost certainly a good example of that. In any case, I want to play you something where I'll bet you didn't know it had words. You know, I think a lot of us have, you know, had red wine and maybe some marijuana and listened to that classic Thelonious Monk album. And there's the song, Well, You Needn't, that wonderful title, Well, You Needn't. Well, did you know that this has words? This is Carmen McRae singing in 1990. This is delightful. You're talking so sweet, well, you needn't. You say you won't cheat, well, you needn't. You're tapping your feet, well, you needn't. It's over now, it's over now. You're dressing with class, well, you needn't. You're holding your sass, well, you needn't. You think you're a gas, well, you needn't. It's over now, it's over now. Now it's over now You had your fun so take a bow You ought to know you lost the flow The beat is slow, the shadows go, the lights are low It's time to go, let's close the show down You're taking off weight, well you needn't You're looking just great, well you needn't You're setting the bait, well you needn't It's over now, it's over now So, Afro-Asiatic You've got your Semitic, your Berber, your Egyptian, your Cushitic, your Chadic, and not your Amotic. Well, what is Afroasiatic? These languages are all so different. What is the character of an Afroasiatic language? If, say, Russian is a very typical Indo-European language, if that's the pattern, what's the Afroasiatic pattern? And it's hard to say because this language family may have arisen, Proto-Afroasiatic, may have been spoken as long ago as 16,000 years ago. It was certainly at least 10,000. So there's been an awful lot of divergence 
between these subfamilies. There are many people who think that beyond about 10,000 years, you really can't see any kind of relationships at all. That is clearly too conservative, but still, after 16,000 years, there might not be much of a single character to all of these languages. Maybe it's not tri-consonantal roots, but it's thought that possibly Proto-Afroasiatic would have had bi-consonantal roots. And so it would have been like run and ran in English, except they all would have been that way. The signal is faint, but just maybe. So for example, in Cushitic, if you trace back to what would have been Proto-Cushitic, well then rise is ruh-wuh, and then in a Chadic language other than Hausa, it's called Ngizim, the word for to rise is Rawa. Okay. And then in Arabic, there is Rawa. And that means to be spacious. Now we're kind of stretching it, but maybe that's related to rising up into the sky or something like that. And then in Omotic, there's a Rum. And that means termite mound, and maybe that means rise because the mounds are tall. See how forced it is? Omotic is not part of this family, but there are these biconsonantal roots that you can tentatively reconstruct. And so maybe being Afroasiatic is being kind of pre what happened in Semitic, because you can see that pattern in a great many of the languages. Then more certainly, it's the pronouns. All of these languages have evidence of a certain kind of pronoun pattern that couldn't be an accident. Basically, you is always t something, and then you have he as y something. So that's the way it is in Arabic. That's the way it is in um, one of the Berber languages called Kabyle. It's like that. And then in Hausa, he is y, but then you is not something with t, but she is t. And that's exactly the way it is in Arabic as well. These things couldn't be accidents. And so something along those lines. But what we do know is that if you look at the shapes of words in general, you can tell that unless it's omotic, Afroasiatic is a real thing. And that's what happens up on the top of Africa and also in a bit of land over east of the Red Sea. And I'm going to go out on Blossom Deary who I don't think I've played on this show, and I should have. And this is her doing one of her signature hits, My Attorney Bernie. This song makes me very happy. With my attorney Bernie I'm impressed with his influential friends He's got very big connections And I follow his directions Bernie knows his way around And so I always do what Bernie recommends. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. By the way, it's not called a cocktail for the reason that you might be thinking, but the only way for you to find out where it came from, at least from me, is to become a Mukhtatib. In any case, Mike Volo is, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter. Bernie tells me what to do. Bernie lays it on the line. Bernie says we sue, we sue.